from the time that we are very young and we realize that we're being marketed to or sold, we're given a vision of the good life, a vision of our lives that we should aspire to, a picture to measure what success looks like. And if I could illustrate it in a picture, it's this picture right here. It's the path of upward mobility. It's the path of up and to the right. And it's not a bad picture if you can experience it. But the problem is for most of us, if we try to hold our lives to this picture, we're going to be continually frustrated. See, for most of us, the picture that we actually live isn't this picture, it's this picture. (laughs) It's what's called the path of downward mobility. Things don't always go up and to the right. In fact, they often go down and to the left for longer than we like. And uh, I don't agree with everything he's written, but Richard Rohr really sums up this picture well here when he says, success is not a bad friend, it's just a lousy teacher. The only thing that can teach us, that can get through to us and profoundly teach us is suffering, failure, loss, and wounds. There's been a ton of research done in uh, the last half century about how adults learn, about what drives us to change. And uh, one of those experts uh, shared about 12 truths that uh, mark adult education and adult growth. And, And one of those, Dr. Ralph Brockett says, is that the need for adult learning is often triggered by some sort of developmental transition or crisis. They they use a phrase, it's hard to teach an old dog new tricks. And the truth is, for many of us, it often takes some sort of life transition, some sort of running into a brick wall, some sort of crisis to lead us to change. And it isn't just changing in terms of of how we see ourselves or how we see God. It comes down to fundamentally how we view the world. And often those seasons are seasons of difficulty, seasons of loss, seasons of suffering. And that really crashes hard into that picture we saw in the beginning because according to the good life that we're given as Americans, uh, we should always win. We should be the ones who are always victorious. And, And that idea kind of even seeps into our faith where we say, hey, you know, I should be winning. I should be succeeding. You know, doesn't God want me to succeed? Doesn't God want me to win? Doesn't God want me to to see things move forward? Doesn't God want me to be victorious? I mean, we even look at John 10.10, which says, a thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. This is Jesus speaking. He says, I have come so that they may have life and have it in abundance. We go, Scott, doesn't God offer us abundant life? Doesn't God offer us just the good life? Yeah. But his definition of abundance so often is different from ours. So often it's not that picture of life that goes up and to the right. So often in our lives we discover God's abundance actually on the way down. And that's in essence what this series is about that we're in called In the Wilderness. It's about finding the abundance of God in the place that we least expected it. We said last week that wilderness could be defined this way, and this definition's in your handout if you're following along. Wilderness is a place or a set of circumstances where people are subjected to forces that test them and often make them change, usually instigated without their input or active choosing. And we said that most of the time we don't choose wilderness, we don't look for wilderness, but we often end up there anyway. 
And I want to ask you a rhetorical question, which means don't answer this out loud. Just so we're all clear on what the word means (laughs) before I ask it. But I want you to think about for a second your life in the past, especially if you're a follower of Jesus. And I want you to think about this question. When were you closest to God? When was your faith the strongest? When did you sense his presence in the most palpable way? When were you most proud of the the, the bond you had created with God? When were you most consistent in drawing close to him? When did you depend on him the most? And when was he actually God for you the most? Was it in this or was it in that? John Ortberg says that people who doubt God's existence list suffering as their primary objection, while people who follow Jesus list suffering as the main thing God used to transform them. And that's why we have to push back, as the Apostle Paul says, against our culture's way of thinking and be transformed in the renewing of our minds Because our culture is never going to sell us the view that suffering is the good life. Our culture is never going to tell us that actually on the way down the path of downward mobility, we find abundance with God. Our culture is never going to sell us a vision of the good life that isn't easy, comfortable, safe, and secure. And yet over and over and over again in the scriptures, we see people, and even in our own testimonies, we find that the abundance of God and the relationship we want with God comes in the wilderness. Now, one of the things about doing a series that's only three weeks long is you can only say so much. And so I want to encourage you, if you haven't gone yet, to prescottcornerstone.com slash wilderness. There's a number of resources there. If this series strikes a chord with you and you go, I, I need some help with this, or I'm going through the wilderness, or I'm looking for more, I'd encourage you to go there and put together a ton of resources for you. But today what I want to do is I want us to locate ourselves in someone's wilderness journey in Scripture and see what we can learn about our experience that we're in the middle of or coming out of, or heading into, from their experience. And that person is Moses. And today, through Moses' story, we are going to learn our big idea, which is that brokenness opens us up for deeper healing and new callings. Brokenness, that experience that, can, that often happens on the way down the U-shaped curve, what it does is it opens us up to allow the healing to go deep, and for new callings to emerge. Today, if you're following along in your handout, I'm going to share with you four stages of the wilderness journey. You may find yourself in one or all four of these stages, or maybe this is a message that you file away for later when you stop going on the upward mobility path and you end up on the way down. The first stage of the wilderness journey I call orientation. And I think all of us at some point in our lives have experienced orientation. It's that moment where we're going down the path we hoped to go down, that path that we dreamed of going down, that path that we wanted to go down. And we see that in Exodus chapter 2. So if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to open up to Exodus chapter 2. 
And, uh, and the life of Moses spans four books in the Bible. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's, it's a long story. We're only going to cover a very short section today. We're going to cover, in some ways, his first wilderness experience. And Moses, if you're unfamiliar, is a man who was born to Hebrew parents while they were enslaved in Egypt. The Pharaoh had outlawed the birth of male babies and tried to get the midwives to show up and kill the male babies, but, but his mother was able to have him before the midwife arrived and she hid him up until a certain point where she put him in a basket in the Nile River and he was discovered by the daughter of the Pharaoh who then gave him unknowingly back to his mom to nurse him and raise him and then bring him back to the Pharaoh. And so he grows up as a Hebrew in the house of the Pharaoh. We pick up his story in Exodus chapter 2. It says, when the child, that's Moses, grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son, the Pharaoh's daughter's son. And she named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. The word Moses sounded like the idea of being pulled out of the water. Years later, after Moses had grown up, he went out to his own people and he observed their forced labor. And he saw an Egyptian striking a Hebrew, one of his people. Now, now what's so interesting about the story of Moses is that Moses is a person who is emotionally homeless. Sure, he has a roof over his head, but he doesn't have a place to call home because he lives with the Egyptians, but he's not really Egyptian. And he has to go out and see his people, but he's not being beaten or enslaved. He gets to go back home at the end of the day. He doesn't have to make bricks. He doesn't have to build pyramids. And he's struggling with this in some way because he goes out and sees his people And then he sees this man abusing one of his people, this Egyptian master. So the passage continues in Exodus 2.12. Looking around and seeing no one, he struck the Egyptian dead and he hit him in the sand. The next day, he went back out to his people and he saw two Hebrews fighting. And he asked the one in the wrong, why are you attacking your neighbor? And his neighbor says, who made you commander and judge over us? The man replied, are you planning to kill me? Has he killed the Egyptian? Apparently he didn't look around well enough. (laughs) Then Moses became afraid and thought, what I did is certainly known. And when Pharaoh heard about this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and he went to live in the land of Midian and he sat down by a well. Now, this section of Moses' life, for me, is is one of the more frustrating parts of Scripture. Because I don't know enough, and I have so many questions. I want to be able to pull Moses aside and talk to him like a counselor would, and really plumb his heart and figure out what was going on inside of him. But he runs away. And I have to believe that in in this moment, Moses is a little bit like an iceberg. There's what the Scripture tells us and we can see and then there's everything else. I mean, Moses is in power. He's, he's literally the, the grandson of the Pharaoh. And he wants to be able to help his people. He wants to be able to free his people. In some ways, he wants to be their savior. That's why he kills the Egyptian. And yet, 
When he goes to help his people, again, they go, what, are you going to kill us too? It's like he wanted to help them, but they didn't want his help. He wanted to be something, and then he found that other people didn't want him to be that. And I don't know if you've ever had a moment in life where you thought you were going to do something. You thought you were going to be something. You thought you were going to be somewhere. You thought you were going to become someone. And then the bottom fell out. And that vision of reality, it crashed into life. For me, that's, that's what happened to me not long before I came to Cornerstone. I was in what my wife calls survival mode. And um, I didn't realize just how much I was skimming the surface and just how much was going on underneath the surface that I didn't even realize. We had a conversation in uh, counseling recently where we talked about the different visions we have of what that time was like. And she helped me to see some of my blind spots and some of the things I didn't even realize were going on. You see, God was beginning to shake me up and stir me and unsettle me. And he was beginning to move me into what is the next stage in the process, and I didn't even know it. Because I wanted to be something that I wasn't allowed to become. I wanted to become someone that I was struggling to become. And my vision of how things were going to go just kept slamming into life, making a mess of things. And like what happened to Moses when he runs away to Midian, I made a change and I went a new direction. And I will look back on my life as seeing that's the moment where things began to change. You see, like every great story, there is a moment in time where you divide time before and time after. For Frodo, it's that moment when the ring comes to him and he gets pulled into this epic story. For Luke Skywalker, it's when two droids show up on his farm and he gets pulled into this battle. For you, it might be when the pornography was discovered or the affair was discovered or you got your first DUI or you lost your job or you moved to Prescott, or you left Prescott. But orientation ends with a moment where you go, there was before that moment and after that moment, but that moment changes everything. And that moment moves you from orientation into the second stage, disorientation. Because Moses' life changes in a moment when he flees and runs into the desert of Midian. And he begins to experience a radical disorientation. Exodus 2 continues, it says, Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water, and they filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Then some shepherds arrived and drove them away. But Moses came to their rescue, and he watered their flock. When they returned to their father, Ruel, he asked, Why have you come back so quickly? And they answered, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds, and he even drew water for us, and he watered the flock. So where is he? He asked his daughters. Why then did you leave the man behind? Invite him to eat dinner. He saved your life. And Moses agreed to stay with the man, and he gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage, and she gave birth to a son whom he named Gershom. For he said, I have been a resident alien in a foreign land. 
And over the next 40 years, Moses will see everything that he thought he knew be stripped away. He spends 40 years in Egypt before he kills the Egyptian and runs away. And history tells us he spent 40 years in the Midian wilderness. Again, there's so much here that we don't know. Exodus 2 ends telling us that he marries Zipporah and he has a son. And then Exodus 3 picks up, and in your Bible, there's like this much space. But that space represents four decades of time. And we've got no idea what happens. So what I'm about to share with you is not Bible. It's just some reflections from Scott. Bible's inspired, inerrant. Scott is far from inerrant. But I think what happens over the next 40 years is reflected in who Moses is when we meet him again. Because I think some profound things happen in the wilderness to Moses. He's in solitude. There's nobody around. Exodus 3 tells us he's out with his sheep as a shepherd by himself. He's dealing with silence. I mean, even the Bible is silent. And I don't know about you, but when you're out in the desert by yourself, the silence gets really loud. He's stripped down of all the things that he once knew, all the things that he defined himself by. He's sobered as he imagines his life that he thought he would live and the life that he lived. I have to believe that he felt forgotten by God over those 40 years. And he becomes the servant of his father-in-law. And I don't know about you, but what happens to me when I go through disorientation and in my experience that happened when I first moved to Prescott is it felt like waking up. Some of us are sleepwalking through life. And it takes an event that throws us into disorientation to wake us up to what's actually happening all around us. And the the wilderness becomes an invitation to begin surrendering and laying things down because we can't hold on to them anymore because of what's happened in our lives. And I just want to encourage you that if you are in the wilderness today, and especially if you're in a season of disorientation where things are going down and you did not see this coming and you don't know where you're going, beware the story you tell yourself during disorientation. Beware the story you tell yourself about God. Beware the story you tell yourself about yourself. My friends have built a wall here for us. And this is often what happens when you end up in the wilderness. Is you allow your feelings and your stories about yourself and God to build a wall between you and God. See, some of us, when we end up in the wilderness, we hold on tight with everything we have to our lives And we try to white-knuckle our way through the downturn. We find ourselves fighting God. And sometimes things have to keep going down until we'll finally let go. For some of us in the wilderness, the wilderness becomes the time where we begin to take all the things that didn't go the way we wanted, all the things that didn't happen the way we would like, and we begin to build a wall between us and God, and it's composed of bitterness, anger, resentment, Hatred, frustration, disbelief, 
all the feelings and stories we feel towards God about what he didn't do for us. Those are a couple of the paths you can go through in wilderness. But there's another one. You can do what Moses does. You can open your hands and you can surrender. You can white knuckle and fight the way down. Or you can allow God to use it to open you up. Because here's the question. What if you're being slowed down and separated in order for God to transform you? What if the things that were happening aren't happening at the rate that you would want and you're being pulled away from them in order for God to do a work in you that he can't do because you're so attached to them? What if God is pulling you away from what you're actually passionate about in order that you'll attach to him and him alone? You say, Scott, I feel like the the wilderness has stripped me down and made me naked. Yeah, that's the point. Because God is not going to become all you want until he becomes all you need. And what I discovered in my season of disorientation three and a half years ago is I had propped up myself with a lot of things that weren't God. And the wilderness stripped those all away. And the wilderness broke me open. And the wilderness began to be the season where God began to heal me and where God began to lead me into a new sense of calling. What if brokenness is a form of preparation? You may feel like your wilderness is a curse, like God has abandoned you, like God has forgotten you, like God has left you out there to wither and die, but what if your vision of the future pales in comparison to God's? What if his plan for your life is better than your plan? And will you trust him to write it and take it places you wouldn't have gone? Ephesians 3 tells us that God is capable of doing immeasurably and exceedingly more than all we could ask or imagine. And the hardest place to believe that is in the middle of the wilderness. But if brokenness and the wilderness is preparation, then the place at the very bottom where you feel like you could not go any further could become the very place where God begins to show you things and reveal things and lay out a future for you that exceeds your own. That's why brokenness opens us up to not only deeper healing, but new callings. And that's what Moses experiences next. Number three, reorientation. He starts out going in a direction, orientated. Then everything falls out and he goes all the way down for 40 years until a moment that we all know so well. And the reason why I didn't start with this is this moment only makes sense when you understand the rest of the story. Exodus 3. Meanwhile, Moses was shepherding the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, And he led the flock on the far side of the wilderness, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire within a bush. And as Moses looked, he thought the bush was on fire, but it was not consumed. Moses thought, I must go over there and look at this remarkable sight. Why isn't the bush burning up? 
When the Lord saw that he'd gone over to look, God called out of him from the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am, he answered. Do not come closer, he said. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And then God continued, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. And the Lord said, I've observed the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their oppressors. I know about their sufferings, and I've come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them from that land to a good and spacious land. And that land will be flowing with milk and honey. It'll be the territory of the Canaanites, the Hethites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites nailed them. Oh, yes. So because the Israelites' cry for help has come to me, and I have also seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them, therefore go, I am sending you to Pharaoh, so that you may lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. The burning bush. One of the most iconic moments in the Bible. But it only makes sense when you realize that for 40 years... Moses was waiting for that moment and had no idea that it was coming. Moses was being prepared for the burning bush for 40 years in the wilderness. A lot of us would love to have a burning bush moment in 2020. Well, what if the one prerequisite is from 1980 until now, you had to go through wilderness? From the last year of Jimmy Carter's presidency to today, you had to go through wilderness. You had to have God strip you down and remove every self-sufficiency, every self-security, every self-confidence, every vision you had of how your life was going to go. And then at 80 years old, that's how old Moses is, you finally hear God speak. I don't know about you, But on the other side of disorientation, I often feel naked and afraid. Not literally naked, but in every other sense. Because God has taken everything away that I relied on. God has taken away everything I counted on. God has taken away everything I, de- I defined myself by. God took away everything else that I, I felt secure in. And he takes that all away from Moses so that he can give him a new calling. Exodus 3 continues. But Moses asked God, who am I? Naked and afraid. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? And that I should bring the Israelites out of Egypt. He wanted to be their savior. And now when he's called to it, he feels unworthy of it. That's what the wilderness does to you. But God answered, I will certainly be with you. And this will be the sign to you that I am the one who sent you. When you bring the people out of Egypt, you will all worship God at this mountain. Then Moses asked God, if I go to the Israelites and ask them, the God of your fathers has sent me, and they ask me, what is his name? What should I tell them? 
And God replied to Moses and he said, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. In the wilderness, what God does with Moses in reorientation is God tells Moses his name. I am. He takes the place that could have become a wall between him and Moses. And he makes it the place where he gives him his name. The first time God uses the phrase, I am. God also gives Moses a new identity. Because Moses has had his old one stripped away. And God gives Moses a calling and a symbol of that calling with his staff. Here's where it hits for you. You didn't choose to have that moment that ended your season of orientation. You didn't get to decide how long the U-curve went down. You don't get to decide when the U-curve goes back up. But you do get to decide the story you're going to tell yourself and God. You do get to decide what you're going to do with those feelings of anger and frustration and bitterness and doubt. And your wilderness can become a wall between you and God, or it can become a monument to God's work in your life. And the choice isn't up to God. The choice is up to you. Are you going to let all the things that you thought were going to happen become the wall that stands between you and God? Or are you going to allow those things to be composed into a monument that you're then able to tell the people, look what God did. This is who God is. And some of you are in that very moment today. You're on the way down or you're on the bottom. Are you going to build a wall? Or are you going to build a monument? Because here's the vision that I have for you. God is going to use your wilderness in the life of someone else. God wants to use your wilderness in the life of somebody else. I sat with a young man this week who is in a season of disorientation. And I was able to share about my own season of disorientation. He came out of a church that was abusive and toxic. And I came out of a church that was abusive and toxic. And he said, how did you get where you are today? I don't want what happened to me to define me forever. And I began to tell him about the last three years and the hundreds and thousands of dollars I've spent on counseling and the anxiety and the panic attack and the tears and the mentoring and the books and the sermons and the hundreds of people that have prayed for me. And because, by God's grace, 
I've got a monument in my life. God used it in somebody else's. But here's the thing. You cannot lead someone else somewhere you have not been yourself. And there is someone that God is going to put in your life in the future that is going to be in the wilderness and they're going to need your help to get out. But if you've never gotten out of the wilderness, you can't lead them out either. And that's the reason that Moses can lead the Israelites out of bondage through the wilderness and to the promised land is because God brought him out of his bondage in Egypt. He walked him through the wilderness and he set him free. And because God did that in Moses' life, Moses was able to do it in the lives of the Israelites too. I can't skip the fourth and final stage because I think we often skip it. And it's the the stage of connection. On the front of your bulletin cover, there's a man by himself. And that's often our vision of the wilderness. It's just us by ourselves with God. And that is not a biblical vision of wilderness. And it's not what happens to Aaron and Moses either. In Exodus 4, God says to Moses, Now go, I will speak, I will help you speak, and I will teach you what to say. And Moses said, Please, Lord, send someone else. Again, he wanted this gig until he got the gig. Now the Lord's anger burned against Moses, and he said, Isn't Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that he can speak well, and also he is on his way now to meet you. And he will rejoice when he sees you. You will speak with him and tell him what to say, and I will help both of you and him to speak, and I will teach you both what to do. He will speak to the people for you, and he will serve as a mouth for you, and you will serve as God to him. Take this staff in your hand that will perform the signs with. See, in the wilderness, he had his father-in-law and he had Zipporah. And as the wilderness ends, God intentionally sends Aaron to Moses, not after hearing Moses' reaction, but before. And we live in the most individualistic culture in the history of our world. Our world is not normal. And some of us need to recognize that the reason that our world is so broken is that we are trying to heal ourselves by ourselves and go through life on our own. Our loneliness and isolation is connected to our anxiety and our depression. And if you want to make it out of the wilderness, you're going to need help. But so many of us don't share the wilderness. My mentor, Maxie Birch, said, we tend not to share the desert times in our lives because they're about weakness, not strength. They're about failure, not victory. They're about certainty and not confidence. They're about trust and not control. They're about struggle and not comfort. This is why we don't let people into our wilderness. For some of you, there are people in your life that have no idea the wilderness you're in because you haven't let them in. And I'm not sitting up here in judgment of you. I'm just sharing with you why. It's hard. And you're going to be lied to by our enemy Satan and say, they they don't don't want your burdens. They don't hear about your problems. You can't trust them. They have enough to worry about in their own lives to hear about your own garbage. 
And if you stay isolated, my fear is that you won't make it out of the wilderness. There's a reason why when God created Adam and put him in the garden, he said, it is not good that man is alone. It can't just be you and Jesus. You need other people. And what would it mean for you to open the door and let them in? What would it mean for you to open up and share with them the wilderness that you're going through? And what might you find if you let them in your wilderness and discover, oh my gosh, (laughs) you're in wilderness too. What might God do? On the back of your handout, there's some steps that I want to draw your attention to to help guide you through the wilderness today. The first thing, these are all just one words, is to listen. It is so hard for us to listen today. We have the attention span of gadflies. We have a a low level of noise that goes in our lives. And yet we wonder why we can't hear God. If you look back at Moses' story, God only speaks to Moses once he's quiet enough to hear. And is it that God is not speaking to you in the wilderness or is it that you're so afraid of the silence that the noise is so loud that you couldn't even hear God if he wanted to speak? The reason why God so often whispers to us is he's inviting us to quiet our lives enough and draw close enough to him that we actually can hear. First stage is listen. The second step for the wilderness is to simplify. Not Marie Kondo style, you know, grabbing your possessions and asking them if they bring you joy. But simplifying your life. And when you go through the wilderness, what it will do is it will force you to simplify and let go of things that you thought you had to have before. In Moses' story, what God does is God has to remove what we're clinging to before he can give us something new. And if you're in the wilderness, you may be holding on to something that because you're holding on to it, there is no room for God to give you something new. And it's only when Moses leaves behind his vision of what he thought his life was going to be that God can give him a vision of a new life. And there may be a period of time in between that. But you have to simplify Third, you got to yield. Yield. If our driving is any indication, most of us aren't good yielders. Four-way stops are just hilarious. See, it's only when Moses ceased his efforts to be Israel's deliverer that God called him to be the deliverer. And maybe you need to stop trying to save other people and let them go down their own U-curve in order to actually be able to help them. Maybe by bailing your kids out every single time things get hard, you're actually getting in the way of what God wants to do. Maybe God has to 
take you away from the vision of what it would mean to save them to actually bring you into the future and give you an opportunity to be there when he saves them. Number four, connect. We're listening, we're simplifying, we're yielding, and then we're connecting. We're letting other people in. And you say, Scott, how do I do that? Well, there may be somebody in your life who has been like a a low-level kind of acquaintance friend, and you just, the next time they ask you how you're doing, you just say, well, do you really want to know? Because we use how are you as a a way of saying hello. 95% of people don't actually want to know. It's just hello. So if they say, how are you? Say, well, do you really want to know? And they say, yes, you let them in a little bit. You take a risk. Say, hey, is there anything I can help, help you with? Yeah, there is something. Hey, you seem to be down. What's going on? Let me tell you a little bit. What happens in Moses' story is that God sends people to meet us in the wilderness, and we often discover we just haven't let in those who've been there all along. Sometimes you're going to get an errand sent to you, somebody who shows up and is your companion for the wilderness. And sometimes God's going to call you to open your eyes and go, oh my gosh, those people have been there all along. I just not want to let them in because I'm afraid of being vulnerable. I'm afraid of sharing. The most scared I've ever been to go into a board meeting at Cornerstone was like my first elders meeting. And I hadn't been able to sleep well for three weeks because of anxiety. I felt like God tell me, tell the elders. Okay, so I want to tell people who hired me that the job is giving me anxiety three weeks in. No. (laughs) No. I mean, talking about my anxiety gave me more anxiety. It was just a vicious cycle. And they said, is there anything we can pray for you about? Yeah, there's something. And it was scary, and I shook, and I was loved. It's not easy, but you can't do this alone. And number five, look. You got to begin to look. You got to begin to allow God to shift your perspective of the future. As I was preparing for this message, I'm asking the band to come out right now. I stumbled on a, a prayer from the Puritans in the 1600s when they moved to America. And the prayer is called the Valley of Vision. And I believe that we serve a God who turns our wilderness into the Valley of Vision. And what I want to do this morning is I want to pray this prayer over you. And to do that, I want to encourage you to stand right now. As you leave today, you're going to find this prayer on tables at the doors. If you're watching online, you'll see it on our Facebook page at about noon. If you can go back to my prayer, I'm going to need that in a second. Or I can just read it from here. Never mind. You're good. The prayer says this, Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou has brought me to the valley of vision where I live in the depths, but I see thee in the heights. Hemmed in by the mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way is down, the way down is the way up. That to be low is to be high. That the broken heart is the healed heart. 
that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision. Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from the deepest wells. And the deeper the wells, the brighter thy stars shine. So let me find thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, and thy glory in my valley. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would allow our hearts to embrace these words. We pray that you would use our way down, our disorientation and our wilderness like you did in the life of Moses to break open his heart, to heal, to transform, and to prepare. I believe that there are people in this place who are being prepared for a glorious future that they can't even imagine. If they will trust you, yield to you, surrender to you and open to you and allow you to break them to the point where they're healed. Build our lives today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.